Several weeks ago, we began to think about what the scriptures teach and what it is we believe concerning Christ's heavenly session. What does it mean to confess, as we do, that Jesus Christ ascended on high and sat down at the Father's right hand? What does it mean to say even still that he now presently sits at the right hand of the Father? What does it mean and what does it mean for us that Christ is seated at the Father's right hand? And we looked at Hebrews chapter 9, and as that text is uh, situated within the author to the Hebrews uh, broader argument, and we began by noticing that Christ's heavenly session entails his, first and foremost, his exaltation. The scriptures speak of Christ being exalted to that position of honor and glory that is at the Father's right hand. He ascended on high and sat down in that position of power and authority. It's not as if Christ lacked authority or honor. Indeed, in virtue of the fact that Christ is true God, the only begotten Son of God, He, by nature, is worthy of honor. He is, by nature, He has authority, and He has all honor. And yet, in the working of God for our salvation, in the economy of redemption, Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, who lived and died for us, who rose again from the dead, He ascends to this position of honor. He is exalted, indeed exalted above all and is invested with authority, power, and rule as the only mediator between God and men. Christ is exalted as the victorious king and priest of his people. We noted secondly that this exaltation of Christ brings with it his intercession. In particular, as we think of not only what it means to sit down at the Father's right hand, but for him to sit there presently, as it were, Jesus Christ intercedes for us in heaven with his Father. 
That is, he continues in a manner of speaking that work of mediation and reconciliation. Not as one who must merit that reconciliation for us, but as one who is now, having risen and ascended, has merited. And so his intercession is that working, that effectual working of the Lord Jesus Christ in applying to his people the benefits of his death and resurrection. Christ intercedes, that is, he saves, even as one who is seated at his Father's right hand and grants unto us salvation and access into the presence of God. His heavenly session then entails his exaltation, his intercession, and we focused on those two particular things the last time several weeks ago and began to mention something of what we need to notice in the third place regarding the uh, administration of Christ's heavenly session. If his exaltation is his exaltation to a, uh, as the uh, royal priest and priestly king of his people, there is a way in which Christ administers his royal and priestly rule. In fact, it's why we've turned to, or I'm, and I've read Ephesians 1 and verses 15 through 23, as well as Ephesians 4 and verses 7 through 16. Because here, in connection with Christ's heavenly session, the Apostle Paul speaks of not only Christ's power, authority, rule, but how it is that he prays for us to know that power and know that authority and know that rule, and then how Christ actually, in chapter 4, exercises that rule. How does Christ administer his priestly kingdom and royal priesthood? How does he rule? What kind of ruler is he? What kind of authority, power, and dominion is his? And we need to expand upon the few comments that we made then with respect to the administration of Christ's heavenly session. And then we'll notice, Lord willing, in the last place, something of the consolation of Christ's heavenly session. The administration then of his heavenly session. The Apostle Paul here in chapter 1 of Ephesians says that he prays. In fact, he ceases not to give thanks and make mention of God's people in his prayers. Specifically, that God, 
the triune God, might give to us, among other things, a understanding, a greater understanding of the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. Verse 19. In accord specifically to that working of the strength of His might which He wrought in Christ. He wants us to know God. He wants us to grow in our understanding of God and particularly of His work His mighty work wrought in Christ in virtue of Christ's resurrection, ascension, and heavenly session. Having made Him to sit at His right hand in the heavenly places, which we're told, verse 21, is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Christ's authority, rule, and power is universal. And it entails, moreover, verse 22, that God put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church. This universal authority, rule, and power of Christ is towards the church. Christ's kingdom then is, we might say, a twofold kingdom in which, yes, he rules over all things in virtue of his authority as God. But more specifically, he rules over all things for the sake of the church as appointed as mediator between God and men. His rule is thus, in this respect, a spiritual rule, an ecclesiastical rule which concerns the church, his body, which in a great mystery is regarded as the fullness of him that filleth all in all. We might put it this way, Christ rules over all things for the sake of his church. As we'll come to see, that means that he rules over all things for the sake of the church not only to enrich the church and bless the church, but also to preserve and defend the church, which entails the defeat, the destruction of the enemies of the church. But Christ administers his rule over all things for the sake of the church. His rule, then is in and for and among the church. As the resurrected mediator, as the one who was made to sit at God's right hand in the heavenly places, Christ presently rules 
Overall things, yes, but rules specifically and specially over his church, in his church, among his church. He rules over all things for the sake of his church. His rule presently at God's right hand is being exercised. His power, his authority, his dominion is being exercised right here, right now. Among us as a particular gathering and assembly of Christ churches or one of his churches and in each of us as his people he rules over us he rules among us he rules in each of us he is the head over all things to the church The apostle is clear. Christ reigns now. There are some theologies, theologians who defer Christ's reign to some point in the future. But the scriptures teach, we believe, and it's said here even now, that Christ reigns now. But his reign, his rule, his rule over us, his rule among us, his rule even in our hearts as citizens of his kingdom, is manifested in seeming weakness. Do we look powerful? If anyone were to drive by and wander in and look at us, would they see authority, power, and dominion? No. But that's part of the point. Because Jesus tells us that His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom isn't going to look like His authority, His power, His dominion, His rule over all things to the church, His being the head of the church, All things being presently subjected to his rule for the sake of his church isn't going to look like either what we might conceive in our sinful minds or even what it looks like in the context of civil government appointed by God. It looks like weakness, but it's power. It looks like folly, but it's wisdom. Because God in Christ, indeed Jesus Christ himself, is ruling in the lives and in the hearts of those whom Paul says in chapter 2, have, though they were once dead in trespasses and sins, have been made alive together with Christ and have been what? seated with Him in the heavenly places. Christ is presently ruling, not by 
the conversion of worldly governmental agencies, not not by the taking over of towns by Christians, but by changing those who were once outside of Christ by changing them and bringing them into fellowship with Christ. Those even Gentiles who were separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world, those are now in Christ Jesus. Indeed, those that were once afar off have been made nigh in the blood of Christ. Christ's heavenly and spiritual kingdom consists of those in whom Christ rules, over whom Christ rules. He exercises his power, his dominion, his authority by bringing sinners out of sin and into a state of grace and fellowship with him and by knitting those sinners together as one in the context of the church. Christ's administration of his kingdom, in short, the administration of his heavenly session takes place among his heavenly people. And that's you, that's me, that's us in the context of the church. And that, in fact, that's where he goes in the context of chapter 4. And he goes there because earlier he has said, if we go back to chapter 2 of this letter, that Christ administers his rule in the context of the church through the Spirit. He builds together, he frames together this people, this holy temple in the Lord into a habitation of God in the Spirit. Through the Spirit and in the Spirit, God, in Jesus Christ, rules. Christ administers His heavenly reign, His heavenly session, in the context of the church, by the Spirit. The Spirit, yes, working in our hearts individually, but also working among us, within us, in corporately. And this is why Paul urges us in chapter 4, 
to walk worthily of the calling wherewith ye were called, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Christ's heavenly session, Christ's heavenly rule is administered in us, in the church, by the Spirit, to the end that we might keep and guard what the Spirit has established, or what Christ has established. But more to the point, as we think of Christ administering his heavenly session in us, in the church, by the Spirit, Christ administers his power, his rule, his authority in the way of giving gifts. In the way of giving gifts that by the Spirit's working lead to this building us up into the temple of God, the holy habitation of God. That is, it causes us to be conformed to Christ, not just individually, but to be conformed to Christ together as the church. Christ then administers his rule, his authority, his power, his heavenly session, if you will, in us, among us, for us, to the end of making us the church like him. And he does this by the gifts of the ministry. Or more specifically, the spirit working through the ministry of the word. The Christ who rules exercises that rule by the giving of a diversity of gifts. A diversity of gifts that all tend to the same end. He gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He gives them for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. For our good as His body, the reigning Christ gives gifts that the Spirit uses to minister the Word, to minister the Scriptures, to minister Christ. It's not that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are some kind of special men whose Christian calling is somehow different than every other Christian. But they have a particular calling in the context of Christ exercising His rule and authority. These gifts are from Christ and they are unto Christ. They only serve as gifts if they are towards this building up 
of Christians and Christian churches. No pastor is self-called and no pastor is called to the end of his own glory. Your pastors, though you should respect them as the scriptures teach, care for them as you are able, and provide for them as you are able, they're no special shakes except as Christ has appointed his reign to be exercised unto the end of the conformity of his people to him. Pastors and teachers, the the one office that continues to this day, are gifts to the church not because of who they are, not because they're, they're great people, not because they're of anything other than the fact that they're from Christ, they minister Christ to the end of your being built up in Christ according to Christ's word. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about His reign. It's all about His rule. It's all about what He is doing in you and for you and among us by His Spirit working through the ministry of the Word to make you, make us, united in Christ. And even to that end, there's a general calling that falls upon every believer in the context of the church. Every individual who is under the reign of Christ, every individual Christian in whom Christ reigns and rules, has an obligation, if you will, in the context of the church where Christ rules among us together, to supply... What is to the good of the body? That is, to supply love in the building up of the body of Christ. Now we've sort of flown through a lot of this, but the simple point is this. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God He is presently reigning over all things towards the church with a goal towards the good of the church. And He is doing so through the Spirit that He has poured out upon the church to the end of building up the church into His likeness. Jesus is making us like Him. Individually and corporately. That's the goal of his reign. He's not a despot who would simply bash you into conformity to him. But he is a savior and redeemer. A risen Lord 
who lovingly and graciously and justly and righteously, indeed in true perfection of grace and righteousness, brings you out of your sin and into fellowship with Him and is together making us like Him. Knitting us together in love, shaping us as His body under His gracious rule, under which we will live forever. Jesus is doing now in this week or seemingly weak and lowly manner, what he will do forever. Binding his people to him, binding his people together in him. Christians from all over the globe, Christians from every generation, churches from all over the globe, churches from every generation, under Christ's rule, will be brought together when Jesus comes again. And there we will see the fruit of the administration of Christ's heavenly session. We'll see a church perfectly conformed to Christ forever. This is what He's doing now. Ruling in us, ruling among us, by His Spirit working through the Word to make us like Him. And of what consolation is this? Question 50 of an Orthodox Catechism asks, What profit is this glory, that is the glory of Christ's session, of His reign, What is the glory of our head, Christ, to us? Some of this we've already noted, but it needs to be said. First, that through His Holy Spirit, He pours upon us His members' heavenly graces, and that He shields and defends us by His power against all our enemies. We've already noted that He gives gifts to the church, Gifts which are towards the ministry of the word, which are which are, are revolve around the ministry of the word, and which intend to bring us to the likeness of Christ. He gives us his heavenly graces, all of them from first to last. But he also, and in this way, we need to notice the great comfort that belongs to us, that Jesus shields and defends us by that power against all our enemies. Jesus enriches the church. Jesus builds His church and builds up His church. Jesus defends His church. And He defends His church by defeating his church's enemies. Now, none of that gives us license to ourselves identify what those enemies are. That is, to lean upon our own understanding and say, ah, oh, there's an enemy of the church. 
we must be careful to identify the enemies of Christ's church according to the scriptures as Christ himself defines those enemies. And it's simple, really. Anyone or anything that is contrary to the authority, power, and dominion of Christ. If, for example, there was a man in a white hat in Rome who said that he was the head of the church, you would say, eh, there's an enemy of Christ's church. But it's not just the Pope of Rome. Even in our own hearts, we need to be wary of this. How often do we set ourselves up as little popes and think that we ourselves are the head of the church? No, Christ reigns. And we ought not to think of ourselves as usurping the authority of Christ. But more to the point, any wind of doctrine that could carry us away, any slight of men who are crafty, any while of error, to use the language of Ephesians 4 and verse 14, these are the enemies of Christ. That Christ will defend us from. And that Christ will defeat. That Christ will preserve us from these enemies. And somewhat contrary to the times, Jesus does this in the context of the church. It's not some kind of mystical defense where we, proverbially speaking or metaphorically speaking, kind of throw ourselves into the oncoming traffic of the world and say, Jesus is going to defend me. No, it's taking up his word. It's hearing his word read and preached in the context of the church. It's hearing Christ in the context of his church where he's exercising his rule that builds us up. It's here where Christ defends us. And as we go out from day to day into the world and conduct ourselves because we have been as it were, filled with the word by the Spirit, we are able to take that word and do what we're exhorted to do in the, con in the context of chapter 6, that is, put on the whole armor of God. And I hope you remember from when we studied the armor of God, but all, all of that armor is supplied to us by God in Christ through the Spirit, as we're given those things through the instrumentality of God's Word. Jesus defends us. Jesus preserves us. And He defends us even in the way of defeating His enemies and the enemies of His church by making us like Christ by His Word. Jesus doesn't turn us into culture warriors. Jesus turns us into faithful hearers of His Word. 
faithful churches that are gathered around His Word who can together take up that armor that He supplies to the end that He might preserve us, to the end that He might defend us. And this is a tremendous comfort. To say that Jesus reigns now, that He reigns now in the church, in our hearts, for our sakes, to build us up, to enrich us spiritually, to make us more like Him, not not only individually, but collectively, to conform us to Himself, and even to do so against the onslaught of enemies that, by the way, are not mere flesh and blood, but that are more powerful than us, that He's going to defend us, Tremendous comfort to know that neither I as an individual believer nor us as a church collectively, corporately, we're never left to our own devices. My kids often ask me questions, whether it's about a schedule or They need something. And if I can't think of an answer right away, and they'll know exactly what I'm about to say. If I don't know the answer right away and I need to sort of put them off till I can think it through, I say, I'll figure it out. As a Christian and as churches, we don't go to Jesus and get the answer, I'll figure it out. Nor do we have to say, I'll figure it out. It's figured out. And how do I know that? How should you and I be assured of that? Jesus reigns. And He reigns, and we know He reigns, because He is seated in that position of honor and glory and power and authority. The only thing that's left to figure out, so to speak, and it's not for us to guess at, But it's when he's coming again to make that victory final. To make that reign public beyond the context of the church. And that's not really left to be figured out. It's going to happen. The comfort of Christ's reign, then, is twofold. One individually, personally, that I, as if left to myself, would be unruly, now I am ruled and made like Christ. (laughs) And secondly, that as churches, and as a church, if left to ourselves, we would be unruly and a mess, because Christ reigns, we are ruled and governed in love, in mercy, justly and righteously to the end that will be made like Christ, that will be built up in Christ. Now, none of that is to say that there aren't 
ebbs and flows, ups and downs, difficulties in our lives as Christians, nor in our life as a church. We know that, don't we? Christ reigns. And though the ups and downs that we experience are mysterious to us, they're not mysterious to him. He's exercising his power. Even in the things that we perceive to be downs, the difficulties, the apparent weakness, our numbers, none of that is a detriment to Christ's reign. None of it, in fact, is contrary to his reign. Though there's 15 of us here today, and though our numbers might swell to 35 or 40 when everybody's here and we have a few visitors, Christ reigns. He's reigning. We should be encouraged by that, comforted by that, that our state is not lost on our king. And even it's not accidental. This is the way. This is the road that Christ is bringing us along so that we might look like Him and live like Him. Indeed, that we might be conformed to Him individually and collectively. We can rest content that what is taking place in our lives spiritually and in our life spiritually as the church is the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.